0: All right, good morning, you guys. It is super good to see you. Uh, So kids, elementary kids, you guys are dismissed out that door, and then youth group, uh, middle school and high school, you guys are dismissed as well. And not that Don Jay didn't do a stellar job on announcements. I think maybe I'd do better if I was up here getting ready, right? I'm gonna charge it. That's what happened when we go second string. announcements. (laughs) On announcements. <laughs> so listen, on the inside left panel of your bulletin, which I know you all read, um, that's the list of all the different meetings that are happening during the week every week. And in it, you'll see those meetings Don Jay talked about on Wednesday nights. There's regroup. It's kind of like a mini service here back in the fellowship hall and Pastor Jeff's teaching straight through the book of Ephesians. There's also a life group on Wednesday nights that meets over at the church office where it's just a sermon discussion group. So there's nothing to prepare. You just get together and talk about how I messed it up on Sunday. So it's your chance to get in there and really say, well, that was interesting, but I kind of disagree. And here's the way I see it. And anyway, just a good time for discussion. And then also during the week, I think Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, there are different men's and women's small groups. And those are the groups in which we're going through those um, minor prophets. So we had our first meeting of those last week, but it's not too late to jump in this week. So men and women, if you're interested in a small group, some of them are on Zoom and some of them are in person, but swing by the table afterward and uh, we can get you signed up for those. And then um, if you could put that Understanding the Bible slide back up, that yellow book that Don Jay was talking about, um, super important. So this is a, a book that we offer about once a year. Uh, usually around this time frame in the fall. Some of you did this uh, the first couple times we went through it. Um, this is an absolutely faith-changing, life-changing book, I would say. it's There's nobody here at this church that would not benefit from this book, including me. I'm blessed every time we go through it. And what it is, as Don Jay said, is it's a th- it's 30 days of 15 minutes per day that you spend on your own at home and it just takes you through and it really does a great job for you of giving you just kind of a 30,000 foot view of the scriptures. And at Calvary chapels of course, you know, we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter right through the Bible and one of the things that can happen is we can kind of get lost and we miss the forest for the trees, right? We're, We're turning over every leaf and we're looking at every tree. But you kind of, we want that big picture view. And so this book provides it to you. It has a whole arc of Bible history and it goes through the major geographic regions of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as Don Jay mentioned, it's painfully repetitive, which is such an incredible blessing. There are actually, it's a fill in the blank book and you're just hating it as you do it. And then you're realizing there's a method to the madness and by about the second week, you realize, wow, I'm really understanding this stuff because I'm writing it out each and every day. So I can't recommend this highly enough to you. Um, people who have been in the Lord 30 plus years have gone through this book and just said that it, it sort of turned, it just flipped the light switch on and puts all of the Bible into a, a great sort of a context. So um, what we do in those Sunday meetings is we just simply get together probably here over in the corner in the sanctuary and just have a quick discussion on, you know, what it was that the Lord showed you that you didn't know or, or where was it that he flipped that light switch on for you this week or what was something that really ministered to you from the reading. So it's, it's a great benefit to go through that. But if you want to just go through the book and not hang out for the little meetings, that's perfectly okay too. So we don't actually have the books here today, but we'll have them all here next week. So next week we'll have our agape feast afterward, like Nanjay mentioned, and then we'll just get together and have like a little intro session. I'll pass out the books to those who are interested. If you want to do the study, do sign up today, just have them scribble your name down so I make sure we have enough books for you. So That may have been a little bit clearer, not that Donjay didn't do a great job. So i got to tell you, Donjay, I love that brother. Last night he tells me, Pastor Bill, we got visitors coming tomorrow, so you better step it up. And I said, well, good, I'm I'm glad you told me, because otherwise I'd have just sleptwalked through the whole thing, right? Hopefully we step it up each and every week here. So this morning we're going to step it up in Colossians chapter 4. We're going to look at just verses two through six. It's a wonderful passage. And um, let's just pray and ask the Lord really to bless uh, our time in the word this morning. So Father, we do thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for this wonderful church body, Lord, this church family that we share life with, Lord, with one another, Lord, through the things that you minister to us, Lord, and the ways that we minister to each other. Father, we thank you for this time and this place that you provide each and every week for us to come together, Lord, as as people are utilizing and exercising their different gifts. And Father, we pray even now, Lord, that that, uh, as we go to your word, Lord, we pray first and foremost just for the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that he would be the one that would be teaching us this morning, Lord. We pray that you'd open our ears and our hearts To hear what it is your spirit wants to speak to each one of us individually, Lord, and uh, corporately, Lord, as a church body. And so we thank you, Lord. Pray you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Colossians chapter 4, and if you don't have a Bible, you're going to want one, and we have them for you, so just raise your hands and somebody can bring you one. You're welcome to use a Bible on your phone. Or whatever you like, I'm teaching out of the New King James Version, if you want to follow along in that one. But, uh, so chapter 4, and you remember that we just kind of dipped our toes into this chapter last time. But this morning we're going to look at kind of the what is the first section of this last section of this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in this little city of Colossae just to really encourage them with this big wave of false teaching that was threatening their growth in Jesus. And we remember in chapters 1 and 2 the way that the apostle Paul so powerfully and so beautifully really highlighted for us first of all the supremacy of Jesus in chapter 1, the sufficiency of Jesus in chapter 2, and then based on those truths he kind of turned the corner and started talking about our sanctification through Jesus right and through Jesus alone in chapter three and now continuing that on into chapter four and it's this intensely practical section really all of it dealing on how it is that we grow and how it is that we mature in our faith through that indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit of the Lord Jesus himself as he's transforming us more and more into the image of Jesus. And so we come this morning to chapter four. We come to these sort of final remarks of Paul, he's starting to really close out what has been this powerful little letter. And it's this series, as we often see in Paul's writings, it's this series of these kind of short final exhortations. And they begin first in verse two, which you'll remember we looked at together briefly and we looked at it in the context of our text last week. So I wanna pick up there again this morning Look again in verse 2 of Colossians chapter 4, where Paul writes this. He says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. And we remember as Paul was sort of dealing with this concept of, of what we called putting our faith to work. And he detailed out these different spheres where we should be doing just that. Right? we should put our faith to work in our marriages and with our children and at our workplaces and through our witness right that these are these places where our gospel culture right that that very different culture that's shaped by our faith in the gospel message right that that reality of what it is that the gospel has done this wonderful transformation that it's born in our lives and we're taking that culture, right, so this gospel-formed culture, and we said it should be evident to all of those people who are looking in from the outside, right, as we're really living out our faith, and remember, he talked about all of this, and he talked to the wives, and he talked to the husbands, he talked to the children, he talked to us as employees and as employers, and about the way that we relate to each other in each of, each of these different contexts. And we said that these are all sort of these very complex relationships that we have in life and trying to kind of navigate those things and do it as we're trying to shine brightly for the Lord and we asked you know how in the world do we do that and the answer was there in verse two is that we go to the Lord and we bathe all of these different relationships continuously in prayer. We bathe them earnestly in prayer. This healthy dose of thanksgiving right there on the side. And so next, as we kind of move in today's text, we're going to see Paul pivot really from the idea of living out that gospel culture now to the idea of getting out that gospel culture into this dying culture that we see all around us. So that's the title of the text today, Getting Out Gospel Culture Into a Dying Culture. And as I said, it's a wonderfully simple section, but it's a very powerful section because it's really kind of this this culmination of this whole practical section on our mission as a church right? Or the church, right? The church with a capital C to bring the message of the gospel to the world. And you remember, we're going to reach back for a moment. Remember back to chapter one, where Paul talked about the fact that we've all been reconciled back to the Father, right? All of us as Christians, we are Christians because we've been reconciled back to the Father through the death of Jesus Christ. We've been brought back into that relationship with him, right? We who were separated from him because of our fallen, sinful nature, that it was the sacrifice of Jesus, right? It was through our placing our faith in that act, that's what provided the way for that relationship to be reconciled or to be uh, repaired and restored. And we saw that Paul said that we've now been entrusted with taking that very same message of reconciliation out to the world. Remember in 2 Corinthians 5, he said that Jesus Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. So we've been given this good news, right? This good news that people's sins can be forgiven, that they can be brought back into relationship with their creator. And now Jesus himself told us, remember right before he ascended to heaven, he said, go therefore, and what? And to make disciples of all the nations, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we're to take this message and we're to teach it to others, right? It's our mission given to us by Jesus. It's actually the mission that we're on with Jesus, isn't it? It's the great, it's a co-mission, right? It's the great co-mission. And what it is I think that we need to remember as we're trying to carry out this great commission is that we as Christians, so we the church collectively We have all the answers to all the world's problems. Startling statement, right? Amazing, but the truth is we do. We have all the answers to all the problems in the world today because the world's problems are simply an expanded version or really an exploded version of people's problems. All the problems that are in the world are due to the conflicts that people have with one another. And that can be on a rel- relatively small scale, right? Just one person with another. But it can go all the way to people groups, and then, of course, to nations. And then it turns into war and all of these other things. And so, as we look at this great range of people's problems, let's never forget that we as the church, we have the answer, and that answer. Is the gospel. Because the gospel. It fixes. People. That's what the gospel does. It fixes people. By putting us. Back into that right relationship with God. The very thing that we were created for. Right it fixes us. Because it breaks the power of sin in our lives. It gives us this whole new nature. Which the Bible says. Is nothing less than God's own nature right as God takes up residence in us he dwells in us by his spirit that's how God fixes us right he places his he brings us back to himself and then he puts his life into us and what happens is then when we get fixed And then the other people around us start to get fixed. And as far out as that fixing starts to spread, the more and more people that start to get fixed, then societies start to get fixed and culture starts to change. And at that point, the world potentially can change. And so the gospel is this means of this great reconciliation, right? It's the means through which God is doing this wonderful work and so the world needs the gospel we as the church have the gospel and so of course the question is how do we get that gospel out of the church and into the world and in our text today Paul gives us these three wonderful ways that we're going to see that each and every one of us can do that the first one is pray In verse 3, he says, he's just been talking about prayer. He continues in verse 3, he says, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So not only do we need to be praying for the gospel to be manifest in all those different relationships in our lives, But we also need to pray for the gospel to go forth, what, from our lives as these messengers of the gospel. And this is one of the things that Paul said that we should continue earnestly in prayer about. We should be vigilant to be praying for. Other translations say we should be devoted to this kind of prayer. So the very first thing right, is that we need to be praying continuously. Now, as Christians, I know we've, we've talked about prayer. We've all been encouraged to pray many times. It's something that as Christians we learn from the very first days of our Christian life. But if at this point in your Christian life we think we don't need to hear about it again or we don't think we want to hear about it again, then, hey, it's probably because either we're not doing it right or we're looking at it all wrong. Because when we talk about prayer, it's not one of these things like I'm beating you, or oh, you should be praying more, I should be praying more. But prayer is this wonderful privilege. We have the opportunity to connect at the deepest and the most intimate level of our being with the creator of the universe. And we can do it personally, and we can do it individually, and we can have our own hearts Knit together with His. That's the real purpose of prayer. The real purpose of prayer is not simply to rush in and to lay out this big list of needs, although God absolutely does want us to come in and to lay those things out before Him. It's absolutely right what they say you know, prayer does change things, but the very first thing that it changes is what? Us. It changes our hearts. Because what happens as we pray is we start to see the world and we start to see the people around us in the world. We start to see all of that from God's perspective. We start to see it the way Jesus saw it. Remember in Matthew 9 where it says that when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And there's one of the modern translations, I love the way it puts it, it describes the compassion that Jesus has, not just because they were weary and scattered, but because they were harassed and helpless. Isn't that a great description? It's exactly what people are today who don't have the Lord in their lives. And God wants us to see them the way that he sees them. And as we do, What happens is then we start to engage and we start to ask him to help us to help them. Right? We start to ask him to do the things that only he can do so that they can come to know him. And that's why Paul prays here for open doors for the gospel to be preached. So not only do we need to pray continuously, but we need to pray specifically for open doors. Now, Think about this. There were plenty of personal things that Paul could have asked prayer for. Remember, as he's writing this letter, where is Paul? Open book test, right? It's right there in the text. He's in prison in Rome, right? He's in chains, he says. But he doesn't pray for the prison doors to be open, right? Paul prays for what? The doors of ministry might be open. And just this idea that Paul would have to pray for this, this is such an important thing for us to remember as we think about how to get this gospel culture out to a dying culture. We need the Lord to go out ahead of us and to open doors for us that we just can't open for ourselves. And there's a wonderful story in the life of Jesus. You remember in Luke chapter five, they're up in the Galilee, of course, the multitudes are all just pressing in on Jesus and he remembered that he jumps into this fishing boat. It happens to have been Peter's fishing boat right there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then remember they just push Jesus out a little bit into the lake as it were and Jesus teaches the people sitting there in the boat. And then after he'd finished his teaching, this is what it says in in verse 4, it says that when he'd stopped speaking, He said to Simon, who's Peter, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net." Right, so again, you've heard the story before. Here's Peter, right? A professional fisherman by trade, an expert who had been fishing on this same lake probably every day of his entire life, he says, hey, look, we've tried everything, right? We've been toiling, right? We've been laboring all night at this, and yet if you say so, Jesus, we'll try again. Verse six says that when they had done this, so when they had let down their nets, it says they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. That's quite a catch, right? And so it's at this moment, Peter wasn't the the smartest calf in the herd, right? But it's at this moment that Peter really starts to realize there is something more to this Jesus than meets the eye. And it's at the end of this account that Jesus says to Simon, he says, do not be afraid, from now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. And of course, the application, right, it's very easy in many respects because we too are called to be fishers of men. But I think that the really interesting point in the story, especially as that applies to Paul's point here, is that Jesus had to intervene in order for these fishermen to be successful in their fishing. Jesus had to do something that was altogether supernatural to get those fish, that multitude of fish, to get them into that net. So Jesus did something that went even beyond the natural ability of these men or their great experience or their hard work. And then this is the very same story, isn't it, that we see continue throughout the Gospels and then especially it presses right in all the way through the book of Acts, the way the Lord was always going out before the apostles, right? He sent them, as he sent us, out into the world to preach the gospel, but he went out before them and he went out before them doing the very thing that Paul is asking prayer for here. Jesus went out by the power of the Spirit and he was opening doors, wasn't he? page after page, story after story. You think about the masses that were assembled at Pentecost to the crowds then that were preached to in Jerusalem, to all of those imprisonments that gave way to such powerful testimony about him. And then you think about you know Philip going up to Samaria or Peter going out to the house of Cornelius or Paul and Barnabas and then Paul and Timothy out on journey after journey to city after city to all of those pagan stronghold cities all across Asia Minor as they were chased out of one and fled to another and we saw riots and rallies and there was teaching and there was preaching and all of these remarkable and amazing things that we saw happen which could only happen because the Lord was supernaturally opening up doors, right, one after another. He was, in the book of Acts, he was flinging these doors open, wasn't he? Left and right. And the apostles were so very faithful in the power of the Spirit to simply walk through those doors. Right? God was at work. And all of that to simply say this. That's exactly what we're all longing for today. And that's exactly what we need to be praying for today. Nothing less than that praying that God will open a door, that he'll do those things that only he can do so that we can do what little we can do. We need him to prepare the soil. We need him to open the door. We need him to bring the people. We need him to set up those kind of divine appointments for us throughout our days. You know, However you want to look at it, God can still do all of this. And as a matter of fact, he probably is already doing it, each and every day in each and every one of our lives if we could just see it. But what we need also is to be praying that as these doors of opportunity are opened up before us, Paul says essentially, look there at the end of verse 3 and on into verse 4, Paul basically prays, hey, open the door and pray for me that I may make the gospel known. Or you could translate it, pray for me that I may proclaim it as clearly as I should. And again, that needs to be really the, the heart and the prayer for all of us who are servants of God, right? who are fishers of men. First of all, that we'd have the opportunity, but then that we would have the empowering to clearly communicate the word of God and the gospel of God in a clear way. What will we say when that door is suddenly opened up right in front of us? And people say, well, I don't, I don't know all the scriptures, right? I don't know the Romans road. I don't know what verses to use. Well, you probably know John 3.16, right? So start there. You know, well, you, know, you know how God saved you. So start there. Even just the 32nd version of it. You know how to plant seeds of God's word into your conversations and then pray that the Lord would just water those seeds in that person's heart. And if you've never really taken the time to think about these things, you know, what would I say? Well, then take some time to think through them. How would I explain the gospel if I had the chance? How would I be able to clearly communicate the beauty and the mystery of that gospel message in a way that could be understood. Right? That the creator of this entire universe would come to earth and live as a man among the rest of us as men, and that then he would give his own life as a sacrifice for my life. Right? That perfect life in exchange for my corrupted one. Also, that that barrier of sin. And that that barrier of sin and rebellion that separated me from God, that that could all be taken out of the way and that I could be reconciled back to him and now live this incredible life of intimacy in relationship with him. Remember, we're talking all here about taking that beautiful gospel message that creates that beautiful gospel culture and taking it and trying to infuse it like good, life-saving medicine into the sick suffering culture that's all around us and it is such a high privilege and such an important calling so let's make sure we pray and we do it continually right? right that as a church we are in a constant posture of prayer about these things these open doors right so that we can be faithful to what god's called us to do and pray also As Paul exhorts us next, look what he says in verse five. He says that we're to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. So we pray for open doors and wisdom as we walk through those doors. So we need to pray continuously and we need to walk wisely. And boy, I will tell you today that we need wisdom, don't we? in navigating this current cultural kind of a moment that we're in, which in and of itself is a door for the gospel that's already standing there open before us, right? All of the unrest and the anxiety and the division and the uncertainty all around us, that is nothing less than a beautiful open door for us. It's sort of like a two-car garage open door right in front of us with this multitude of harassed and helpless people standing right on the other side. And so we really desperately need God's wisdom as we seek to relate to them. Right? Paul describes these people here as what? Those who are outside of the family of God. They're outside of the blessing. They're outside of the promises. They're outside of the hope that we have As God's children, but they are searching so desperately for all of these things. Paul's talking about how we're to relate to people who are not yet believers. And the first thing he says is that we need to walk through this world understanding the fact that the world is watching us as we walk. And that what they should see in us and see from us should be something that's so very different than anything they've ever seen before. It's a different kind of a life. There's a different quality coming from our lives, right That it's a life truly lived in the power of the spirit in all of those different spheres of relationships, right in our homes and in our workplaces. and you know it, it needs to match those things that we say. And what they see needs to match what we say that we believe. Now, there's a true story that was told about a a pastor he ministered back in the early 1900s. He was well-known at the time. His name was Dr. Will Houghton. And he later served as president of Chicago's uh, Moody Bible Institute or Moody Bible Institute. Either take your pick. One of those two you could enroll in. But earlier in his career, before he did that, he was called to become the pastor of a large church down in Atlanta. And there was a man living in that city who hired a private detective to follow Pastor Houghton around for weeks and report back on his conduct. And after weeks, the detective was able to report to the man that Dr. Houghton's life in private perfectly matched his preaching from the pulpit and as a result of this that man gave his life to Jesus Christ and became a Christian right then and there. So of course the question for us is what if someone hired a private detective to follow you around or what if they just listened in when you're at home through your Alexa Right? Or through your nest or whatever it is you. Or what if they had Siri spit back all of your searches or your location history or your spending info? You get the point, right? Would they give their life to Jesus based on the way that you live your life for Jesus? So we need to walk like everyone is watching because they are. That's walking in wisdom. I'm sure you heard you saw that article maybe there was a man he you know he said my wife asked me why I speak so softly in the house he said I was afraid Mark Zuckerberg was listening it says that she laughed I laughed Alexa laughed and Siri laughed <laughs> right. right so let's let's all just live in a way that maybe even Alexa or Siri or any other AI, right, maybe even Mark Zuckerberg himself, if he's listening in, that they would be convinced of the reality of Jesus Christ. So probably our Facebook stream just got shut down, I think at this moment, but we're maybe still on YouTube. So, and I have to say, I love the way once again, Paul puts it here, he makes it so simple. Right? It's not like, hey, get my latest set of podcasts on the Apostle Paul unlocking the 15 steps to successful witnessing. It's one simple exhortation, and that is to always walk in wisdom. But it needs to be that wisdom that comes to us only from heaven. And of course, James talks so much about wisdom, right? James chapter 3, he compares the kind of wisdom that is earthly with the kind of wisdom that is heavenly, right? This is what James writes, James chapter three, he says, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, he says, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every either evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. He says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now remember, James here is of course writing to Christians and what he's telling us is that there are two possibilities. He says there's one type of wisdom that, that underneath the surface of it has, all, it has bitterness and jealousy and self-seeking and selfish ambition, right? He calls it a, a wisdom, right, or a way of navigating life, right? It's a way of living out your Christian life, but it's absolutely the wrong way to go about it. He says that that wisdom doesn't come from heaven, it's earthly and natural, and he even says it's demonic. And so he's warning about this kind of a pseudo-wisdom that can really creep into a church or to creep into the life of a believer. And I think that we, you know, we probably see that nowhere else more than in Paul's writings to the church at Corinth. Remember, the, the Corinthians were all caught up in worldly wisdom. They were all caught up in this Greek idea of wisdom. It was the very same sort of wisdom that we talked about was coming in to threaten the church at Colossae from those Gnostic teachers. But at Corinth, it was full-blown, was full-blown in what it looked like and what it sounded like and the kinds of problems that it created in the church. And you remember the church at Corinth, it was a self-focused, self-centered, self-protecting kind of a wisdom that had led to a lot of pride and arrogance and all kinds of division there in that church. So that's the kind of thing that Paul says that we're not to be involved in. But then James goes on and he contrasts that kind of wisdom, that earthly, natural, demonic wisdom, and he says that there's another approach. Right? There's another wisdom that comes down from above. Right, This is the heavenly approach. And this is the kind of wisdom that Paul's talking about that we should be walking in, which James says is what? Pure and peace-loving, gentle, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere, genuine, Right, non-hypocritical. So that's the wisdom that Paul says that we want to be sure we're walking in as these people from the outside are looking in on us. And there's a couple of words there that really stand out, right? Peaceable, peace-loving. Because the person who's walking in wisdom is always going to be a peacemaker. They're going to want to bring peace into those situations where there's contention or strife. They're not going to add to that. They're not going to you know, bring more contention. They're going to bring a solution of peace. Also, he talks about gentle or willing to yield. Right? So this is a way that Paul says that we should be walking, not this kind of aggressive, sort of self-assertive, kind of in-your-face thing, this prideful ugliness that unfortunately we see so often even being displayed amongst Christians today where there's no gentleness and there's no yielding to it. There's no willingness to yield. I remember it was actually a number of years ago, Michelle had just gotten back from a pastor's wife wife's conference. She was so encouraged and she posted the theme verse of the conference on her Facebook page with a pretty graphic and, and all of these things. And I'm not even sure what verse it was, which is probably better, but it was an encouraging one. And it was all about how we're loved and how we're you know, called and, and stuff. And I was at work at the church office and I remember seeing that she had posted it and people were liking it and people were commenting on it and I thought, oh, isn't that great? Both Michelle and I have a pretty eclectic Facebook list of friends. We've got lots of unsaved people from back in the day and then of course we've got all the saved people from our current life and it's neat because all of those unsaved people You know, as they see stuff come across our feeds, it's like putting Jesus right out there to them. And so all of this is happening, and I'm thinking, oh, look at all this. It's great. Everything's going on swimmingly until these two knuckleheads, I mean these two brothers, right, in the church who we knew had differing views in their own theology and and knew each other, they started this little discussion in the comments section about the verse, And when it turned out, now it's become a debate right there in the comments. And they start calling Bible translations into question. They're dragging in the Greek. They're quoting the church fathers. And I'm just like sitting at my desk watching this in horror. And Michelle, I think, was homeschooling all the four kids at the time, right? So she can't do anything about this. I'm thinking, what in the world are unsaved friends thinking about these two Christians having this fight on here? And all I could do is I sent a private message to the two of them, and I said, guys, I don't care about your debate, but you take it off of my wife's page right this instant. And I said, you delete every one of those foolish comments. You are destroying any good work that Jesus was doing here. And to their credit, they did exactly that. And they were both very apologetic because they realized they weren't walking in wisdom, especially toward those who were, or you know, in front of those who are on the outside. And we can all be guilty of this, right? We can be guilty of it as individual believers, but we can also be guilty of it as the church, right? collectively it's one of those things that you know we're to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside and there are times when we just need to yield and not just yield to other christians sometimes we need to yield to those themselves who are on the outside i will tell you right now that the reputation of the church in general is suffering terribly in the culture and it's not suffering because of jesus amen It's suffering because the church is not walking in this kind of wisdom. There are times when we need to not try to force our point or whatever it is. You know, we we need to be walking in a way that looks more like that heavenly approach than the earthly one. Because Paul says that when we walk this way, what does he say there in the verse? He says we're going to be redeeming the time. In other words, we're going to be making the most of every opportunity. Right? making the most of every opportunity that we have to testify to the reality of Jesus as we're living out our lives in front of these people who are outside, whether it's those people we work with or school with or in the neighborhood that we live in or people that we are just are meeting when we're out in the community doing whatever we're doing out in the community. Maybe even it's a complete stranger that we just met while we're traveling. There are all these wonderful opportunities out there And we need to walk in wisdom so that we can take advantage of them. It's interesting that that phrase there that Paul uses, redeeming the time, is actually literally buying up opportunities. So as we walk wisely, we're also buying up opportunities. Right, Each and every day in our lives, if we're looking for them, we're going to find those open doors for witnessing to what it is that Jesus can do in a life. And as they come along, we need to be ready to buy those things up. I mean, to snap them up like a blue light special. Anybody blue light special? Okay, like an online pop-up store, right? Or like a snap them up like a prime day deal. Right? Is that better? The point is, we need to not miss out on those opportunities. And think about this too that word buying, it kind of implies that there very often might be a cost involved. Right? It can come at a personal cost in order for us to walk in that kind of heavenly wisdom. Right? We could fight back, but should we fight back? You know, we absolutely could get what's coming to us but at what cost is it gonna come? We might very well win the argument, right? Or or we we might get to speak our truth, but it may mean that we blow our witness and our chance to walk wisely because I promise you that our best testimony will always come through our humility and our gentleness and our self-sacrifice because the world doesn't see that anywhere else. And just in case the message hadn't hit home yet, Paul gives us this one more kind of a clear exhortation along these same lines. It's our last verse in our text today. Verse 6, he says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So not only are we to walk wisely, but we need to talk wisely as well. And the very first thing Paul says is to make sure your speech is gracious. It needs to be marked by kindness and by courtesy, right? That's kind of the definition of a gracious person. Once again, it's so important to think about this in the context of all of those who are outside of the church, and the objective is we're trying to get the gospel to them. And so we are first and foremost to be gracious and to be courteous in our speech, right? With our words. And here I'm going to let you guys in on a a pro tip, right? A very often overlooked way to show courtesy and to show grace as we speak is simply to shut our mouths and just listen, right? God gave us two ears and one mouth, and we need to use them proportionally. Right? But sometimes we get so taken with this idea that we've got to get our personal point across or we need to make them understand that we're right, that we just miss out, right? We completely forget this. We talk more than we listen, and we are simply not very gracious. Now, James already preached this portion of my message, but in the book of James in chapter one, James writes this. He helps us out. He says, so then, my beloved brethren let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I know it sounded better when when James read it, but once again, if if we think about this, right, in this kind of a moment of culture that we're in right now, I have to wonder, right, for us as the Christians in the church collectively, again, us as Christians individually, is our speech with grace? Are we really, as God's people, in relationship to those who are outside, are we showing kindness? Are we showing courtesy? Are we quick to listen? Are we slow to speak? And unfortunately, I think what we're seeing so often in this current time is we're seeing some Christians who aren't really wanting to listen at all. They just want to speak. And as a result of it, there's kind of an anger and there's a frustration that develops within us because we feel like we're not being listened to. So maybe we just need to talk louder, right? Because we've got truth on our side, right, which we do, but somehow there's this kind of a misguided idea that our anger, they say, well, you know, it's a a righteous anger. And we think that somehow that anger is going to somehow produce something that's good. But James just tells us flat out it's not going to happen. Right? That this does not produce the righteousness that God is looking for. So our anger and our debating and our arguing and our insistence and even our snarky memes... Right? that we put out on social media toward those who don't believe what we believe, as funny as they may be right? to we who believe the same things, but when we're coming down, when we're being critical, that's not how the gospel advances. That's never how the kingdom moves forward. So let's be swift to hear. Let's be slow to speak. Right? Let's be swift to hear. Let's be slow to post. Amen? And let our speech always be with grace. Right? And if you're a note taker or if you're a digital highlighter, let's just do this little exercise. Just circle that little word, always. Right. Let your speech always be with grace. Because if you go to the text in the original Greek and you look up that little word, always, that Paul uses there, it has a very interesting meaning, it has a very nuanced meaning there during the time that Paul was writing in that very specific cultural context that he was in. So much so that I think you're gonna wanna make a note of this because that word always, it actually means always, always. It means all the time. It means not sometimes, not most of the time, It means all the time, every time. It means that there is not a time to become angry or to become aggressive in the way that we speak. It means that there is not a time for us to try to shout another person down or revert to name calling. We are just not to do that as the people of God. Because here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he was breathing out these very words onto the parchment through the pen of Paul, he has taken that ugly option off of the table and he's replaced it with this high calling to kindness and to courtesy always, right, always, to minister grace into every situation by the things that we say. And it's so important because these are the things that really make that difference. These are the things that those people who are looking in from the outside at the church and our faith, and they're watching and they're evaluating. And, you know, a lot of them are wondering, hey, you know, Christianity, is that an option for me? You know, is this something that I should be considering for my own life? And I'll tell you that with everything going on in our world, lots of people are thinking a lot about these kinds of things. All of the instability. I mean, people are thinking about their own mortality. They're thinking about things that they haven't thought about before. And inevitably, that's the open door. Because it's going to lead them to think about the possibility of God. And of course, their question then is well, where am I going to find out about God? And if they're looking at the church, or at the people in the church individually, and if all they see is people who are enraged and always expressing this anger and this frustration and this bitterness with the things that are going on, I promise you people are not going to be attracted in this direction. So we can't let our speech go to that kind of an ugly, negative place ever. But what we absolutely can do and should do, look what Paul says says next, He says we need to make sure that our speech is always gracious and that it is perfectly well seasoned with some salt. Now, what is Paul saying here? Well, of course, in our modern minds, we we see salt just as a seasoning. But in the mind of Paul's time, right in the ancient world, the thought of salt wasn't simply as a flavor enhancer. It was what? It was a preservative. This was the way that they preserved meat, right? There was no refrigeration. There was not an ice maker in sight. So how did they keep their meat from going bad or their fish from going bad? Well, they caked it in salt and that salt then preserved it. It destroyed the bacteria, right? And kept it from growing and going rotten. So salt, in addition to being a preservative, of course, it also adds flavor. But salt also produces what? It produces a sense of thirst in someone who eats it. And I think that when Paul talks here about letting our speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt, I think that all of these different ideas come right here into the picture. Because the way that we speak should create a thirst for people to want to hear more about Jesus. You know, the way that we speak should be flavorful in that it draws them in because it tastes good. And the things that we speak, the words that we speak, should have a preserving quality to them, right? As we speak the word of God into any given situation or conversation, there should be a preserving element, right? That we're speaking things and the way that we're speaking things is actually preserving the environment around us. Right, that as we're sharing a story about Jesus, maybe it's from the Bible or maybe it's from our own lives, it should be tasting good to people and it should be creating a thirst in them to want to hear more and to want to know what he's done in preserving our lives. Now here i got to offer a word of caution because notice that Paul says that we should be seasoning our speech with salt. Not making it the main ingredient. Right? Now, I love salt probably more than the next guy, but not as a main ingredient, right? Again, many years ago, Michelle and I were invited to Thanksgiving dinner at my newly married brother's house, and he and his wife had worked super hard to host their first. Thanksgiving for a pretty big group. I mean, we were there and they were there and my parents and her parents and her grandparents and I think maybe even her brother and stuff. There must have been more than a dozen of us around this table. And everything was going great until the pies came out. Pumpkin pie and pecan pie. And Of course, everyone took each, you know, to taste them and the pumpkin went off without a hitch. But the pecan All of a sudden, as people put this pie in their mouth, people were literally spitting it back up onto their plates. Now, I don't have a picture of that, thankfully, right? Some people were even getting up, and they were running to the kitchen sink or to the bathroom to spit this stuff out in the sink, and we all very quickly realized that she had accidentally used the salt instead of using the sugar. Probably two full cups of salt in this one pecan pie that's how I feel too Zeke, exactly that way. And can I just sadly say that when I hear some Christians speak or see the things that they're putting out on social media you know, that they're getting their truth out you know in Jesus name, there are some salty Christians out there, salty, self-righteous Christians and every time I think about that pecan pie, and here's something else, right, keep this in mind. Any good chef you ever watch on the Food Network will always tell you that even an appropriate amount of salt only brings out the flavor that's already there in the food. And I think that's important for us to remember, keep that in mind as you season your speech because those salty words are only going to amplify an already harsh, or already kind of aggressive message if that's the place where your heart is. Right? So let's not be those salty Christians, right? Let's use the the salt and season in just the right amount flowing from a heart that's right, right? Just the way that Jesus did. Right? Jesus always balanced grace and truth, didn't he? Remember a couple of weeks back, we mentioned those, those his compassionate encounters with the two women, right? The woman at the well in John 4 and the woman caught in the act of adultery in John 8. And we talked about the way that the word of God dwelt, of course, so richly in him and it, it flowed from him and it gave life to them. And that's this balance that we're talking about because remember that to the woman caught in adultery, Remember, he said this, he said, neither do I condemn you. So, of course, there's the grace. But then he also said, go and sin no more. There's the salt. And again, to that woman at Jacob's well, he said, first of all, he said, give me a drink. Now, that was the grace right there. Simply the fact that he was reaching out to her and that he was wanting to engage with her, especially as a Samaritan woman. That was a gracious statement. And then as he spoke with her, you remember at the end of it, he says what? He says, go call your husband. There's the salt. Because he knew, and she knew, of course, that she was living with a man to whom she wasn't married, and his words made her look at that reality in her life. But in each of these cases, there's just this beautiful balance between the two, right? Full of grace and yet seasoned with salt. And it brought life and it ministered mercy to these women. So we need to talk wisely, but we need to make sure we're seasoning appropriately. right? And as we get this seasoning mix in just the right balance, look what Paul says, the last point here, he says that that's going to produce something special in our witness. Look at the end of the verse. So as we're speaking with grace, as we're seasoning with salt, Paul says that you might know how to answer each one. And so here's kind of where this all comes together for us. So tune back in if you checked out. I get that we're a little late, but we'll be out of here by two. I promise you that. So this this all brings it all together. So as we're praying for open doors, as we're walking in heavenly wisdom, as we're speaking always with grace, and as we simply do this in front of those who are outside, what it's going to do is it's going to bring up conversations and it's going to bring up questions from them that we can then answer for them. Right? So, the other thing we can do is we can answer effectively. And of course, we think about what Peter wrote along these lines. He says, Always be prepared to do what? To give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. And then Peter even says, do this with gentleness and respect. So again, as we're walking in wisdom, as we're being gracious, what Paul's getting to is then that's going to create in the minds of these people who are outside, they're going to have questions as they watch us, right? They're going to see our peaceful demeanor and they're going to hear our gracious tone and they're going to say, hey, I want to ask you something. How is it that you can be so hopeful? How is it that you can be so peaceful? How is it that you can be so kind in the midst of all of this, whatever the situation is? And as they do that, we will know how to answer each one, and that's with the truth of the gospel. We answer effectively with the gospel. And every time we do it, maybe we're planting a seed for somebody who's never heard the gospel before. Maybe we're watering the seed for somebody who's in their their journey along to meeting Jesus. They might come to us and say, you know what? I heard this, but I want you to tell me a little bit more. Or they might even say, you know what? I think the gospel is true, but how can I personally know? How can I personally experience this Jesus that you know? And that's when we say, you know what? I can answer that for you. And then we share with them how we came to know Jesus and we invite them to come to know him too. So as we close today and we are prom- I promise we're closing. We talked before in through this book that we are living at this amazingly strategic time. Right in a critical time I think in human history with the the civil unrest and the racial conflict and the the real economic uncertainty and the national and the international, not just threats to peace, but the actual wars that are happening, not to mention all of this on the heels of some sort of a worldwide health pandemic. Now, all of these things have happened in the past, and yet the fact that they're all happening right now at the same time, this is a unique moment in time, and it's a strategic moment And it is an open door where the church, we have this opportunity to shine and to show the beauty of Jesus right through the lives of those of us who are being conformed each day more and more into his image. It's our opportunity really to step up and to show the world what Jesus is really all about. And to show them how it is that the gospel can really pierce through all of these things that are going on and the way that it could do for them what they see that it's done for us. And let's not miss this moment. But instead, we need to pray for open doors and pray for the ability then to clearly communicate the gospel. We need to walk wisely and talk wisely and season appropriately, answer effectively, right? Let's pray and let's proclaim and let's be wise and let's be gracious. And as we do that... But I was thinking, it's just like Moses said to the children of Israel when they were backed up against the Red Sea. And he says, do not be afraid, he says, but stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. We're going to see God do something beautiful. But it has to start here in us as the church first. Right? We have everything perfectly in place to have this beautiful moment where the church can just shine. Right Where we really can get that gospel culture out into this dying culture, but we just need to do it. And we need to make sure that we don't miss this moment. Amen? Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. And we thank you for Paul, Lord, and the way that you used him to communicate these truths to us, Lord. Of course, we thank you for your spirit, who breathed these words onto the page, Lord. We thank you for that same spirit who now breathes life into these words in each of our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that you would, uh, that our hearts would, would just find a place, Lord, deep down for these words, Lord, that they would have their work uh, in us, Father. And we pray that we would uh, not miss this moment, Lord, that we'd be your people and that we would rise up and be used by you during this strategic time. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name.